you need a space where you can work in a very different way with a different toolbox, with a different mindset on exploring the future. And if you don't create that space, again, it's not going to happen. But you have to be careful because if that space is too separated, guess what? <laughs> it's going to be too easy to kill those ideas. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. In these conversations, we make sense of what's next. Join me, my co-hosts and my guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hello everyone, Simone here, your usual host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast. I'm here today to present you a podcast episode, which I'm really excited about, which I recorded with my special co-host and former guest on the podcast, Bill Fisher, Professor of Innovation Management at IMD in Lausanne. Together with Bill, we are picking the brain of nobody less than Alex Osterwalder. You know, Alex doesn't need any close introduction to our listener. His work is so important that he continues to influence thousands of people all over the world and the way established companies do business innovation and how new ventures get started. Alex is the inventor of the business model canvas, the value proposition canvas, and the business portfolio map, and many other tools. Together with Yves Pignet, Alex also just released a new book called The Invincible Company, which we talk about a lot in this conversation. Alex talks with us through why in the furiously changing world of today, innovation portfolio management is a must, as well as transforming innovation into a privacy process inside of the organization. We also debate a lot on the several ways that companies can approach this problem. We also talk about the responsibility of companies to become great workplaces, being able to keep and reallocate talent across business units and serve society beyond the shareholder interest. Enjoy this full episode and talk to you soon. So today I'm so happy to be here with not just one legend, but two, as I said in the preliminary conversation I was having with my guests for today. So actually, I'm having a co-host, an exceptional co-host today. Good afternoon to Bill Fisher. Hello, everyone. What a pleasure to be with two of my most favorite people. <laughs> and the other one in, in the chat for today is Alex Osterwalder, which I don't think it needs any introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to a really exciting conversation. So uh, thanks, Alex, and thanks, Bill, for accepting to co-host with a uh, conversation with me. Um, so, so as a starting point, I think uh, it would be excellent to piggyback a little on uh, the latest work from, from Alex that just released uh, this great new book that is focusing really around this idea of portfolio management. And also, so it's really uh, making a point for companies to go uh, beyond the idea to make it just one bet and, and really trying to get organized to uh, manage a full portfolio of bets into the future. And uh, I, I, when I was preparing this conversation, I was reconnecting this with the, the work that I have been doing also with Bill in the last year and a half, uh, working, for example, with the Chinese hire company you know, that uh, has this idea of... Uh, pervasive profit and loss into the organization. So essentially this idea that the organization gets fragmented into uh, a network. And somehow I was uh, stimulated by asking, you know, Alex, essentially these questions. So uh, when you say managing innovation through a portfolio, my, my provocation would be that uh, uh, what, what, are your, what are your feelings? What are your ideas about uh, looking into organizational models that are more into uh, uh, you know, basically creating the space for, for micro teams and, and organizations to uh, self-explore the future without too much centralized uh, coordination. I think it's, it's exactly about that, right? Might be using different words for saying something very similar. But when we say portfolio management in our new book, The Invincible Company, we actually mean two portfolios, right? You got to manage what you have, the business units, that uh, you know you have the business models that you have and that usually are working pretty well and even that part right yeah, more and more companies decentralize that and push the decision making out to you know to the to contact with the customer but there's another part that we are i would say still not very good at yet in most organizations from what i see it's the exploration part so 
As a company, you need to build an exploration portfolio of new ideas that you're exploring in order to build the business of tomorrow. And that requires making a lot of, a lot of, a lot of small bets on different ideas, different potential futures. And then you only make follow-up bets on, on those that really show evidence and traction. Those can show oh, we're really working on a, a customer job pain or gain. And you don't you know, decide in a centralized way when you make those small bets. You give uh, a lot of teams the space necessary to start exploring. You know, ideally, you don't select at all which, which ideas teams can start to explore. Because ideas are everywhere. They're cheap. You know, they're great to get started. Bill you know, talks about the idea hunters. You just need to give people that space to get started. But then you need a system in order to weed out those ideas that should be killed and those ideas that we should continue to invest in. And you know, I'm sure all of the people listening have seen these zombie projects that should have been killed a long time ago. And we just need to find the right system to kill those projects and to invest in those that have traction. And that's the role of the leader, to create the conditions for everybody to know how this works, how we make decisions in order for the best ideas to emerge in this explore portfolio. And you know, so we can transfer them into the exploit portfolio of the, of the business that we're managing. And I think a lot of organizations are doing some of this but probably not yet in the best possible way. So I like to call this innovation theater, right? Um, but you know, you need to get started with this whole idea of decentralized teams that can start to explore, but they also have the legitimacy to explore and the power to make the decisions they need to make to advance. But then you also need to have a system in place that, that you know, is able to kill those ideas that should not live longer, right? That's, that's what it is all about. I think there are a lot of people speaking about very similar topics, tackling it from different angles, the more organizational angle, the portfolio angle, the process angle. And we just need to start creating a good shared language so we can really help these organizations to move uh, in the right direction. And, and uh, it's great that you speak about essentially um, giving them the legitimacy. You know? So I think that was a very good point. And uh, Sometimes I feel like there is an elephant in the room, you know, when we talk about innovation. You also talked, uh, just said uh, something about the, the innovation theater, no? So my question is, by quoting uh, uh, Hollywood movies, but uh, isn't it that with great power comes great responsibility? So to some extent, enforcing, let's say, these um, profit and loss as, for example, uh, you know, Amazon or, or, or Hire did in the past, could it be the case that this is essential and not just the one uh, nuance of uh, doing really good portfolio management at scale for innovation? So I'll, I'll piggyback on what you just said, you know, with, with power comes responsibility. I think, you know, in innovation, and already we should probably distinguish between different types of innovation, right, from efficiency innovation all the way to transformative innovation. These are very different types of innovation that require kind of different approaches. But the challenge today is that, you know, when it comes to innovation, when it comes to transformative innovation, there is no power, right? You know, you have smart people working on really good ideas, but they're literally almost somewhere in a garage, right? Uh, you know, and then they report to the person who reports to the person who reports to the other person who reports to the CTO, who reports to, you know, the COO, who reports to the CEO. Well, guess what? That's not going to work, right? So, you know, I'd say that the challenge today is that there is no power in innovation, and that's why we're getting innovation theater. Now, it's changing, okay? This is definitely something that I'm sure Bill can talk about how he sees this change as well, because I, I look up to Bill, you know, it, he's done so much great work in innovation. You know, I, I started a, a little bit shorter a while ago, but what we really see is there is a change in the organizational structures to give innovation power. And with that comes responsibility for sure. And my favorite example, just to mention one concrete case, is a, actually a Chinese company, um, Ping An, because they have a co-CEO, Jessica Tan, who is responsible for the future. You know, I'd, I'd like to call her, it's not the title they use, but we use that title, the chief entrepreneur. It really giving innovation power, putting it at the similar level as the CEO, not just, you know, reporting to somebody. Because if you really want to take the innovation, the, the future seriously, 
you need either a co-CEO or a CEO who spends 40 to probably 60% of his or her time on innovation or more. And the way you can figure that out is you do the so-called Rita McGrath test. You look at the CEO's agenda and if not 40 or 60% are not marked out, you know, as, as blocked out for innovation, you're not going to get innovation at that organization. So I think there's a lack of power and there's not even, you know, the choice of responsibility that comes with it because innovation today in many, many organizations that I see from the inside, is just not powerful enough to make a difference. So we need to put the future, how we think about the future and the systems we put in place to really take the future seriously and build that future, we need to put that at the center of our strategic intent. Otherwise, nothing's going to happen. You know, I couldn't agree with you more. Every organization that I work with, I'm sure that you and Simone work with, has a, a present and a future, and, and they're different. And um, they require different skills to um, be able to navigate the challenges that they face. Inevitably, if there's a conflict, the, the present always wins because the power is concentrated in the um, in cash flows and the political the political power that goes along with creating the present. So I want to make sure that I understand what you're saying. Are you saying that the future is so important? That in in some organizations like Ping An, maybe most organizations, that we need to separate the present from the future and put the present in a different part of the organization, um, structured differently, and allow it to go through a different set of reviews and 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 assessments in order to see what works and what doesn't work. Do I have that right? Absolutely, Bill. So. I think it's incredibly important to create that space where you separate out, and I'd say it depends, right? So we'll get back to that in a second, but you need a space where you can work in a very different way with a different toolbox, with a different mindset on exploring the future. And if you don't create that space, again, it's not going to happen. But you have to be careful because if that space is too separated, guess what? <laughs> it's going to be too easy to kill those ideas because the antibodies of the organization are going to kill everything that comes from that outside entity. So you need to have just enough separation to you know, have that culture, those metrics, and those processes that are different to explore ideas, but you need enough integration so the ideas will A, survive, make it into the core you know, engine of the present, as you said, and for the exploration entity to be able to draw on brand. And the one thing that they have that you know, startups don't have, which is customers. It, it sounds really easy to give innovation teams access to customers, but the reality is you know, the, the salespeople will say, no, no, stay away from my customers because you're going to ruin my bonus. I need to sell. I don't want you to talk to them about new ideas because they won't make the sales. They won't close the sales now. So we need to create that separate entity, but it's just integrated enough that we can actually leverage the strengths of existing companies, large or small, right? You have assets. And that's what makes an established company, again, small or large, different from a startup. There are enough challenges <laughs> for corporations to innovate, so let's use the strengths that they have. So it needs to be separate, but it also needs an integration part. And let me get back just to the different types of innovation. Efficiency innovation is really about making your business model and processes better, your existing. And that can happen inside of the core you know, execution engine, the existing businesses, and you don't need separate, you know, completely separate entity doing that. You do need to explore in a slightly different way. But when it comes to more transformative innovation of inventing the future or creating entire new PLs or growth engines, think Amazon Web Services, there you really need a separate entity to be able to explore. So, you know, it's not that easy to design this kind of system, but we, we learned enough from the mistakes in the past you know, how much to separate and how much to integrate because it, it needs to be a mix of both because otherwise it'll just be a startup in chains that has to kind of struggle with the constraints of a large organization. So we need to change enough that we can do both, manage the present, explore the future, but also really use the assets that corporations have that startups don't have because right now in terms of funding, I still think startups are probably better funded 
not talking about R&D here, I'm talking about you know, exploring new business and growth engines, startups are probably still better funded than corporations when it comes to exploring new growth engines. Alex, um, and of course, you know, we've seen this with uh, Nespresso right down the block. And um, we saw it with IBM where they, the original IBM PC, the PC Junior, I guess it was, had to be taken out of the Armonk and moved down to Boca Raton. So there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of history around what you're saying. Well, one of the things that, I, that, that I'm interested in, though, is as you go through the different processes in the explore part, in the explore portfolio, which is, you know, separate but close, do you see a point where you say this is successful enough, let's integrate everybody around the new model, or does it play out differently? Does it play out with the startup, in fact, becoming the new present? And the old present either being spun off or or fading or how does that work? I, I and I'll tell you the, the reason behind my question. I'm wondering what the obligation so the people in the present, no matter how they work around efficiency and performance, they're building a platform for the future to be explored. If they're successful, they're also putting themselves out of out of work. And so what I'm wondering about is what is the long-term leadership obligation to the people in the present who are soon to become the past? Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think that's a, a, a central question to how we organize. And, you know, thinking about the rigid, cor rigid corporate structures that we have today, one, when one part of the business dies, we fire the people, we get rid of them. Uh, and it shouldn't be that way, right? It should be constant renewing, uh, reinvention where, you know, okay, the value propositions and business models you have, they go away, but those people should be reallocated. Those are, you know, capable resources. You should always be, you know, constantly reinventing yourself and shuffling around resources because, you know, if we take the explorers and the executors, guess what? The explorers at one point, you know, once they've figured out a business model that can scale, then the whole thing goes into a territory that they're not good at, which is managing. So you already, you know, you have to, you know, maybe handover is not the right word. You need something more delicate. But then it becomes part of the execution engine. So it's not that easy that we say, okay, you're going to build something new and that's the new entity. No, you need to share and move things around. Once a project was explored, there's enough evidence to scale it probably it's going to be a different team or more resources from the traditional you know, management part of managing the present that are going to be added to that exploration, to that new business model. So I think we need to really stop thinking about, okay, rigid structures where this old business model or business unit is dying, we're going to fire those people. We need to really constantly think about reallocating resources. And I remember a couple of years back at the Drucker Forum where the head of uh, HR of WL Gore, so very interesting company, very decentralized model, where she was explaining how they're doing exactly that, right? Reallocating resources. So that's one aspect of my answer. I think it's really important to consider. And, you know, also for the exploration side, what's interesting, take Amazon, they had a lot of big failures, but the people who were in those projects that failed, they didn't get fired. They started working on new projects. Guess why? Because that's what happens in exploration. You'll have a lot of failure, but you'll learn from it, and it's not the you know it's not a challenge that okay these people screwed up. It's just that it was the wrong idea at the wrong time. So it's really about you know keeping the best talent you have and reallocating it constantly, and that's a real challenge for the rigid organization structures that we have. Now there was another part of your question, which was you know one model that we're exploring replacing existing models that we have. I kind of split it into you know a couple of different you know trajectories. So I like the example of Netflix when, and that was, you know, started as a startup that disrupted an entire industry. But when uh, Reed Hastings and the co-founders started Netflix, they already had this vision of streaming video, but the infrastructure back at that, at that time was not good enough. So guess what they started with? They started with DVD by mail order. 
and they worked towards a new business model. So it was you know, almost like a long-term vision that they worked towards with a more approachable vision. That's what I would call evolution. And the team grew, and then at one point, I think they're still actually making money from a DVD by mail, funny enough, they, it grew into two structures, and they had some struggles with figuring that out. Okay, that's one model of evolution. Now, if you take Amazon with Amazon Web Services, that was a completely new P&L that didn't replace. So I think there's this misconception sometimes in innovation that everything new is going to cannibalize the existing or replace it. That can be the case, but it doesn't have to be. So in the case of Amazon Web Services, that was an entire new profit and loss that business became a business unit and is today the most profitable business unit. Not the biggest one, but contributes most to profit. So that's a different organizational model where you actually need to open up a whole new space for this new business unit. And of course, you know, sometimes you do have the challenge of disruption. If we take, you know, Gillette and the, the startup equivalent with the Dollar Shave Club, ultimately it was acquired by one of the big, uh, I think it was Unilever, right? There you have more of a cannibalization um, relationship. But again, rather than saying, okay, we're going to kill that old business unit and fire all the people there, we need to think a little bit more you know, dynamically of how are we going to use the talent that we have there because we paid a lot of money to make them and keep them world class. It makes no sense. Now, sometimes, of course, when you're shifting your business model to something new where that talent doesn't you know, work anymore, now you're IT-based and there's no more need for people who are not um, technology-based, okay, that can happen. But I think we just need to generally be a little bit more delicate and more uh, thoughtful of how we create these transitions, what types of transitions exist, and how we you know, work with talent and keep talent. I think the rigid structures, kind of these, uh, you know, uh, this ownership model of, of this is mine and okay, I, can't, I have to protect it, otherwise it's going to die. That's exactly why we, we don't see innovation happening in companies because people who own, in quotes, a PL, they're going to fight you know, as much as they can against anything new. However, if you have a more dynamic model where talent is reallocated, people will not fight because they see it's in the interest of the company. Because if they fight and kill everything else, the company is going to die. So it's about getting people to associate more with the company rather than kind of the, the P&L that they might be leading or protecting. So you know, long answer to very, very important challenge because I think we haven't figured that one out totally yet. That's one of the biggest challenges, I think. And the both of you, right, with the research you're doing, you're working a lot on that more dynamic model, which I think is very exciting. So, the, so what you're suggesting is that organizations will increasingly move over time from people who manage assets to people who manage opportunities to almost like um, giant incubators uh, rather than the traditional brand holders that we've looked at in the past. The, the focus will be on action, not on control. Is that is that right? So I'd say it's, it's both, right? Because again, we have managing the present and that's where it becomes different from a huge incubator because there is a point where business is mature enough, and you know, to the leaders I talk to in companies, they say usually after $10 million in, in, in revenue, then it really becomes an entity that we need to scale and manage. So there is that part of managing, and we need to be world-class at that. And at the same time, and that's the challenge, we need to create this world-class incubator where we manage opportunities. But what I do think is, is absolutely the case is we need to see, see things as you know, transient, right? To, going to, to Rita McGrath's thinking of the transient advantage. So anything that exists, we need to see it as something that's going to die, right? <laughs> it's a business unit. And when we know it's going to die, we also know that we have to reallocate the resources from a core engine to new opportunities. So it is about that opportunity management. Two cases, one where it didn't work and one where it worked. Take Kodak, right? The old example that we always like to use, but it's interesting because they invented the digital camera, right? Or they, they really contributed to that and they weren't able to shift the business model. Well, guess why? Because they didn't, you know, shift the resources aggressively enough away from analog film and the factories that they had around that 
into new opportunities, not just digital cameras, but a business model that could be valuable around, around digital photography. They didn't do that seriously enough. But now take Logitech, okay? Swiss American company, beautiful turnaround in the last couple of years under the CEO Bracken Darrell. What did he do? He talks about what you just said, opportunities management, right? He says, look, in a company you have seeds, plants, and trees. Trees are those businesses that are mature, but they're going to fall over, right? So you want to reallocate the resources back to the seeds. And that's exactly what he did when he took over. He took 75% of the resources from the traditional, you know, periphery, PC periphery business, mouse, mice, and all that, and shifted it into new businesses like gaming, right? Which you could say, oh, that sounds like a PC business, but it's very different, with different customer segments. So it is that opportunity management. But what it does still mean is you're not just creating one giant incubator, you're also maintaining an execution engine. Maybe a last example of showing that when you don't do that, it can get very tricky is GE, right? So GE under Jeff Immelt did some really interesting stuff around innovation, but they didn't really, and again, you know, I'm staying modest here. It's easy for me to say, I didn't have to manage that multi-billion dollar business, right? But they weren't able to fix some of the core so it means you need to remain world-class at managing what you have, but start to reinvent yourself early enough. And that's what we call the invincible company. No company can be invincible, but what you can do is constantly think of, hey, you know, we're going to die, so we need to invent the future already. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't manage the existing because there is you know, a shelf life. So it's about both, right? It's about creating that giant incubator, that little Silicon Valley within, and at the same time, being world-class at execution. And that's the challenge. It's two very different cultures under the same roof. And very few companies can, you know, get an execution culture and an exploration culture to coexist in harmony. All great points. And I'm, I have like tons of questions, but I would I try to stay focused on this topic for a few minutes more. But uh, so... so, so if I think about uh, this idea, uh, with all these opportunities that we have, uh, the question that arises when I was listening to you is how, how to make the case for innovating inside the organization for entrepreneurs instead of just you know being outside. And that's a key question. I think two aspects that I would like you to touch uh, quickly. Uh, essentially, what are the, the the structures that organizations that I, I mean, you know, both managerial structures or even infrastructure, technological ones, uh, that are supposed to, on one hand, support exploration. I'm thinking, for example, of functional aspects of the organization that needs to be uh, integrated, you know, and, and they're not subject to entrepreneurial innovation, essentially. Uh, so what are these structures that the organization needs to create on the side of supporting exploration? And on the other side, what makes the case for belonging? So what may, I, I, you know, you, you work at a lot on culture, for example, as well, no? And so what makes the case for entrepreneurs and to, for employees to belong to an organization? I was listening to Rita McGrath. You, you spoke about her uh, a few times, and, uh, uh, a few days ago, and she was essentially depicting this modern uh, context of work where you have these top guns, uh, people that are able to generate results and they roam from one organization to another. They become like professional sports players she said no and so the question uh, the question is twofold how do you support exploration with functional structures technologies and on the other hand how do you make the case for people to innovate inside an organization uh, how do you create the ownership and how do you create uh, you know the, the real cultural space for them to feel part of something so we, we split it into three things in the Invincible Company that you really can use to leverage your innovation, you know, exploring opportunities, but also managing the existing. The first one, and it almost sounds trivial when I say it, but I'll get into details a little bit more in my answer. The first one is leadership support. And that is, you know, in terms of time, but also, you know, money, but also the portfolio reviews that you do every quarter to put innovation at the center and really show that leadership is serious about this. Because guess what? If this is not on the agenda of all of your important meetings, if it's not in the agenda of the CEO or a co-CEO, nobody is going to take innovation seriously and everybody will see it as legitimate to shoot down innovation. And as Bill said, right, in most companies, 
the present will always win over the future, but that's because we still have those blockers in place. So we need to work at the leadership level to give innovation power and legitimacy. Then comes the organizational design. So you need to put in place the right organizational structures to support managing the present, that culture, and in parallel, not instead of, but in parallel, an exploration culture and how they can live in harmony. We created one job title, which I like to call the Chief Internal Ambassador, the CIA, the person in the middle with his or her team who creates peace between both sides and connects both sides, you know, opportunities with business units, business units with technological or, you know, and value proposition, business model innovation opportunities. But then the last one is also the innovation practice that you put in place. And I like to say, you know, you need to work from the bottom up from your innovation practice, creating a shared language, the same tools to use in execution and exploration, but then also top down, you know, getting the leaders to create the right structure and organizational system for this to take off. Now, there are a couple of things like what I just mentioned, these levers that are the same across every single company, but then how you actually work on innovation specifically do I mainly acquire? Do I mainly do homegrown? Do I mainly invest in startups? That will vary across organizations. So there are some things that are very similar across all established organizations, across all uh, industries or arenas. And that's what we need to put in place. And then how you execute that can be very different. So an example, you know, take Tencent. They invest a lot in startups or Alibaba. But it's not just an investment, they actually create the infrastructure, data infrastructure, for example, so they can benefit from all of those very agile players. Then, you know, hey, or you, the both of you could speak more about that example. Again, decentralized, so you can work with internal teams to explore. You know, one that I know more is Amazon, where they don't make that many startup investments, or they don't do that many acquisitions, you know, smaller ones. They actually do a lot of homegrown, and then they every now and then make very big acquisitions, right? So I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all answer, but there are questions that fit every single organization, right? What is the leadership support you're providing for world-class execution and exploration? What is the organizational structure that you are putting in place to get you know, exploration and execution to live in harmony and to share with each other? And what are the innovation practices that you're putting in place? And again, you know, innovation is a word I think that means nothing. Let's be very specific. Um, there is this difference between efficiency innovation, which we can do with the existing structures, mainly about making things better. And we have sustaining innovation, which is expanding maybe the existing business model or business models with new value propositions, right? A car company creating a new car model, but then you also have the completely transformative innovation, which is about building business models for the future or completely new growth engines like, a, like a Amazon Web Services, right? So we do need to work on those three levers. And then one thing, you know, I was always asking myself, okay, what, what are the enablers for this to really start taking off? And I had a conversation with Scott Anthony, great thinker in, in the innovation space. And he said, well, Alex, why don't we just start with taking away the blockers? Because innovators, they're, they're motivated to innovate, and we're just holding them back because we're putting so many roadblocks into their path that if we just start with that, we can already kickstart innovation and then work towards world-class organizational structures that really enable them. I think we can get huge wins by just taking away the blockers. Let me give you one example. <laughs> this is a funny one. It's my personal enemy. It's the business plan. I still can't figure out why established companies still ask teams who are on exploring idea to make a business plan on 40 to 60 pages, you know, drop in detail how they're going to execute a fantasy that has no proof whatsoever with, you know, wonderful spreadsheet and curve that goes upwards, you know, to billion dollars because the CEO happened to say we need billion dollar opportunities, that doesn't work. We're forcing people to make beautiful PowerPoints and great spreadsheets rather 
then exploring and testing in the field very quickly, killing bad ideas and changing ideas until they become really good ideas. That's how innovation works. So just taking away or killing the blockers would have a huge impact. Oh my God, Alex, I'm so thankful for this, you know, because uh, I'm going to record this and put in some you know, chimes on, on, on the record because it's really, really something that uh, comes back uh, uh, every time you speak about innovation, you know, this idea of business cases and business plans. It's really, you know, uh, you know I think I'm going to use this uh, quick explanation, record it and use it a few times in the future. Thanks really for, for talking about that. Um, so maybe I can I can uh, try to infuse another topic into the conversation that I think is also central to the research we are doing now. So, you know, we're living in a world of network effects. You know? So everybody's connected. Um, uh, somehow also Rita McGrath, again, uh, that I, I'm, I'm going to pick it back on a conversation she, she shared last week with Aperture. So basically, she made the point and said, uh, uh, you know, markets work and now we have the technology. And so it's unavoidable that the pattern of marketplaces and organizing in networks is going to uh, pervade all, you know, the economy to some extent. So what is your take? And especially I'm, I'm really interested in your point of view on marketplaces as innovation drivers and uh, maybe, you know, for example, in contrast or in, in, in opposition to uh, more technological innovation. And... Um, also, your take on the role of the incumbent. And I was listening to another podcast a few days ago with Eric Torenberg that, uh, with some guests. They were making this point and saying, you know, incumbents, they have already the network effects. They don't need to achieve network effects. They have such a big amount of customers that they can somehow uh, generate these uh, network effects much quicker than uh, any other startup. And especially in, in a moment where it seems like opportunities for marketplaces are becoming more complex, you know, more, more complex in terms of business process, more complex in terms of investment and regulation. So what, what is your, your take on the future of marketplaces and the interplay with the corporate? So first, I really do think there is an opportunity. I would call, you know, a marketplace one type of business model innovation, right? There is not just an opportunity, I think there's a, there, there's a requirement that companies move beyond competing on technology innovation, product, service, and price. That is a game you can't win anymore because you get copied so quickly that you can hardly get a return on investment. What you really need to do is start to think about superior business models because when we looked at these, what we call invincible companies, we saw, okay, yes, they constantly reinvent themselves, but they also compete on superior business models and they transcend industry boundaries, right? They don't just compete on product and price. And I think the, the whole idea of a platform or a marketplace, that is one, we call that a business model pattern that allows you to compete beyond your product. Now, here's the challenge, of course, <laughs> you know, in, in many markets, you can only have one or two big marketplaces. What's going to happen to all of the other ones? If you take, if you take the mobile phone arena, well, guess what? There are two marketplaces, right? There's a, the Android platform and there's the iOS platform of Apple. And all the apps are built around that, right? So there are two winners and everybody else can't catch up, right? Microsoft you know, died with, with Windows Mobile because they couldn't keep up, not with developing the phones alone or the operating system, it's because they needed to create this platform. But now there's no way anybody can catch up with, uh, easily catch up with uh, Android and iOS. So that's a great example of a platform, you know, that, that, that they created around a product. So that's the challenge for many companies. Well, if you are not number one or two, is there a space for me, right? So it, it becomes a little bit the the holy grail that, that companies are working towards. But I don't think that many companies are doing that deliberately or are doing it well, right? So that is a typical business model pattern that can be extremely powerful and very hard to uh, disrupt. So I definitely advise people to go more in that direction right, of, of those kinds of uh, marketplaces and platforms. So definitely a wonderful way to differentiate. But there are also many other ones. So I don't like to be dogmatic and say everybody needs to become a marketplace. So, you know, when, you know, you are in the space of uh, Apple and uh, Android, 
well, you know, it's going to be hard to be, you can't be the third marketplace. It's going to be very hard. So you need a different strategy. So I always think you need to find the right strategy at the right time in order to create your space. But if you can be, you know, the one or two, the second company that creates a marketplace in your arena, wow, then you practically become, you know, indisruptible. It's very hard. It's a very defensible business model. It's very hard to disrupt an established marketplace. It can happen, you know, to a certain extent, you know, we could call MySpace was a marketplace. So it can happen. It was that marketplace for content, you know, mainly musicians at the beginning. It can happen, but it gets really hard. Mm-hmm, totally. So I'm. I'm. I wanted to uh, shift the conversation in a, in a in a new space as we enter the final part uh, of the conversation. Uh, I, I know that you are very thoughtful about about this, so I'm I'm looking forward to your reflections. We spoke a lot about the present and the future. No, so. Somehow, the days we are living now, and also the days of the pandemic, uh, I think pushes us a little bit into the present a little bit more. So somehow, we, you know, the Greeks have this idea of uh, time that, uh, um, that has two nuances. No? There is the, the Kronos, which is all, all about uh, today, tomorrow, and the future, and the past. And there is Kairos, no? that is more like uh, the, the, the moment we are living, so, and especially the special moment we are living. So... In terms of you know business model transformation, cultural transformation, organizational transformation, what, what are your thoughts uh, in terms of uh, thinking how organizations can re and are possibly uh, re-embedding themselves inside the present? You know? So inside, the, for example, their responsibilities for, for uh, ecosystems, for communities, for landscapes. So are we, are we somehow seeing a shift in perception in companies to be more grounded in a concept of innovation that doesn't necessarily work in the future, but also works in the present. You know, how do we innovate, for example, the way we show up in the world as organizations, how we uh, deal with our constituents, with, with our eco- the ecosystems that are impacted of, from our work. You know, somehow uh, w- one starting point for this reflection that I can offer is, is that feels like we are perceiving a shift from the user experience as a driver of organizational development, like Joe Pine told us in the last decade, uh, into uh, something that is more like uh, healthcare, no? Hel- sorry, health, uh, so uh, something that is more systemic. You know? So how do we have organizations that fit into society more at large and uh, are driven by uh, care and, and health instead of just uh, you know, providing people with uh, enjoyable user experiences? What, what are your thoughts on that? I think the, you know we're we're going through a, a pretty radical time now, and I think there's a there's a shift that is going to happen because we're living a, a big crisis where corporations really have to ask themselves about their role, how they're you know organizing, and and what their team members mean to them. And I want to bring it back to you know you're talking about the role of in, incumbents, and you know sometimes people say, well, you know I think startups should be the future. And it's just normal that established corporations at one point, they die. And I think that's a very easy thing to say when you're sitting at a comfortable table, you know, you're getting paid your salary or, you know, every month or so. But the, the costs behind a large established company going bankrupt or, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people being fired, that is not something you know we should we should have to go through and i think that's what we're seeing right now you know the way corporations are treating their their team members the big difference between how you know disney fired 100,000 people or how airbnb you know uh, separated paths from 25% of their team members that is a huge difference so that's one aspect. There is a really, really important role of innovation that contributes to you know, a more stable workplace. When companies can reinvent themselves, they don't have to fire people, right? And that, I think, is almost a, a moral obligation. So I can't exci- get excited about just helping a large corporation create new profits for shareholders. It just doesn't excite me, right? But if I can help an organization do better work, more meaningful work, and create better workplaces and grow in the process and create more profits, 
that's when I start getting excited because then I really make a contribution to the world. And that's exactly what a lot of companies are now starting to think, right? So Airbnb is a great example of trying to do that. And then innovation doesn't just become a means to create more profit, which is not bad. That's great. That's how capitalism works. But it's not at the expense of the environment. It's not at the expense of team members. It's so we can continue to collaborate together with the talent that you brought into your company. That, I think, is the interesting thing that we can do with uh, innovation. And, you know, I like to say great companies, they, they do four things. Number one, they create value for customers because otherwise, like, you know, they're not going to earn any money and they're going to go out of business. Number two, they create value for the organization because they need to capture some of the value that they create for customers. But then number three, they also create value for their team members, great place to work, you know, decent financial remuneration, all of that, right? Helping people, you know, work towards what they re really aspire to be. But then the fourth one is also the role in society, right? You know, contributing to, to society in terms of a better workplace, in terms maybe the, like the environment, like Unilever did, or social impact, right? Um, those are the kind of things that you see in world-class organizations. And that really goes back to, you know, companies playing an important role in society, not just making money for shareholders. That is not a bad thing, but that's not the only thing, right? I really do believe organizations have an important role to play in, in, in the society because we're spending a lot of our, you know, waking, you know, hours at companies. So guess what? We better create great workplaces. And that's not really the case right now. You know, seven out of 10 people research shows in North America, they don't want to do what they're doing at the companies they're doing. That's really sad, right? We have to change that. And that's where innovation and you know, the organizational structures we put in place really starts to have a real meaning beyond making more profits for companies. I can't get excited about that part. I think we need that. That's an essential part of you know, growing but it can't be at the expense of all of the other things that I mentioned. I, I agree with what you just said. I have two questions. One question is very short. And does that mean that this flirtation that we've had with the user experience, which has driven design thinking and, and um, all of the innovation changes that have come, come from that, do you see that fading a bit and other social concerns becoming equally important, um, the way we deploy assets, obligations to workers, or is it full out on customer experience and, and, and we'll have to figure the other things out as we go along? I wouldn't say it's fading. I'd say we build on top, right? That's why I mentioned, for me, it's almost like four layers, right? We create value for customers. That's all about the user experience. You know, really, are we really creating relevant value for customers and users? That is fundamental. Without that, we have no reason to exist as a company. It's less and less probable that you can survive if you're not creating good user experience. Like, who goes out and, and buys crappy products? Nobody does, right? But then the second one, of course, you know, is creating value for the organization. You won't survive if you don't capture value for the organization, which comes back to business model innovation, which comes back to the portfolio management. It's not enough to create value for customers. You can still go bankrupt, right? Kodak creating digital cameras that people loved. They went bankrupt. Why? Because they couldn't reinvent their business model. So you have to think about the second one. And then the two on top, I think those are the trends that are happening again on top because you have to have the first two, which is creating value for your team members because guess what? They're going to leave, right? So it's just, it's, it's again, it's not because you just want to be a good person, good leader, or good company. It's because you, you have to do that if you want to attract the best talent. And it's this cheesy thing, right? The, the war for talent or so. But guess what? That is really starting to become real. People don't want to work for organizations that, that are not creating great value for customers. But that brings me to the, the last one. Today, a lot of people don't want to work for companies that don't have a, a really good purpose anymore. That's why uh, social and environmental impact becomes so important. And again, it's not just in quotes, right, to create a better world. It's because it's just good business. And that's where I really love, you know, what Paul Pullman did with Unilever when he was CEO. He showed that long-term thinking 
and focus on sustainability is not at the expense of profit, it's actually in the interest of profit. And guess what happens? You also happen to attract the best talent. So I'd really argue that it's not one is fading, you know, another one is taking over. It's okay, I think we're pretty good now at creating good customer experiences, great products, we're not too bad at that, but we're still pretty bad, if I may say from what I see, at business model innovation. And we're pretty bad at the other two, because not enough companies have started. So I'd, I'd see it more as layers that you need to build on top of each other. Okay, and you, you had a recent conversation with Martin Reeves of the Henderson Institute, BCG, where, where you said that there's a new type of conglomerate uh, on the scene, uh, and it's defined, it's being defined by the synergies between the business models that are in the portfolio, whereas the old conglomerates took pride in being independent um, from their business models. Could you say a little bit about that? And who is it that within the organization, within the invincible uh, company, who makes the call on assessing those synergies? Absolutely. That's that's a great question, right? Because sometimes we we, we get confused, right? And, and say, well, you know, those are completely different business models. We should get, re- sep- we should separate from this or that. But, you know, again, just quickly to go back to Amazon, a bit boring to use the same example, but it is a really good one of a company that built a true business model portfolio where there are very strong synergies. And what's interesting about that case is when Amazon started to invest in Amazon Web Services because they, from their first experiments, they saw traction, they did have to invest billions of dollars into the infrastructure. The stock market and the analysts hated it. They said, what are you guys doing? You're in e-commerce. This is pure stupidity. Focus on e-commerce. <laughs> and of course, you know, visionary entrepreneur Jebesos, he was more into we're building growth engines and we're building growth engines, you know, where there are strong synergies because the backbone of their e-commerce empire and their infrastructure empire is the same. They did need to invest to scale that platform, but it's actually the same infrastructure and If you want, Amazon is clearly becoming an infrastructure player, and they just happen to start testing with their own business model first before they move completely towards infrastructure. They did that with Amazon Marketplace. They're giving their competitors their own infrastructure, but they're earning from it. They're doing it with, uh, they did it when they acquired uh, um, Whole Foods, the same thing, right? They're also going to, over time, offer the same infrastructure to other corporations. That's a wonderful example of a business model portfolio with very strong synergies. You could say Tencent had very strong synergies in terms of data. Um, at uh, Ping An, with OneConnect, the banking infrastructure that they create for other banks, very similar to the Amazon model. You say they almost copied that. So that is an you know incredibly strong play. And when it comes back to, okay, who's, who's actually going to make those calls? I do think that is now really the domain of the leadership to create that strategic direction and that portfolio guidance so everybody actually knows what's in and what's out. Because, you know, I do think those different business models and wherever they land, they still need to they keep that independence. A little bit like in the old conglomerate, there should be autonomy. Because otherwise, you know, this is not a centralized system. We know that doesn't work. There's synergies, but there's also autonomy. And that comes back to, we could say, you know, a platform business model. You know, Amazon builds it on infrastructure, um, Tencent maybe on data. So what is that underlying infrastructure that makes you unique in order to compete in very, very many different arenas? And that's where it's going to get interesting, where you have companies like Netflix, extremely powerful but they don't really have a business model portfolio, right? How are they going to survive against uh, Apple, Amazon, and Google? We don't know yet, right? Right now, they're still ahead, but it's going to be interesting to see if they, as a more, you know, one business model play will survive against others, which are, you know, portfolio plays like Disney, uh, Apple, and so on. So it's very interesting. But the leadership needs to create that shared direction, that, that strategic vision of where we're going and what those synergies kind of are, right? While providing the autonomy to the different parts of, of, the, of the business to, to continue to make the right decisions. And again, back to Logitech, to take an example that maybe is not used that much, Bracken Darrell as the CEO really believes in entrepreneurial thinking. 
So he wants the teams, the different parts of Logitech to be very autonomous, to be very entrepreneurially driven while contributing to you know, some of the shared infrastructure. And, and some of that shared infrastructure is how Logitech you know, um, puts devices out into the world, the, the large retail network and partnerships that they build. That's very hard to copy, right? It's, it's easy maybe to, to make devices, uh, well, easy relative, right? But to copy devices that Logitech makes, but that business small part of having an incredibly strong uh, retail partnership network that is, uh, that is what makes it unique. So I think every company, the leadership has to create that strategic direction. What are we really going to focus on? What kind of organizational design do we need? What brand image do we want? And then create portfolio guidance so those independent you know, kind of units or pieces know exactly you know, where to go and how to play. So I think that's the way I see it, and I see more and more organizations moving towards that new type of uh, conglomerate. It's really interesting to see this evolution. I think we're only at the beginning. Alex, one quick question before, uh, mm, you know, before Bill closes the conversation, I think, um, uh, with, with some consideration. Uh, one quick one that I wanted to ask you, uh, given your experience in, in creating these models, um, it's really the role of a common language. And also sometimes, you know, contrarians or in general critics of, Uh, of models and uh, and languages, common languages, uh, raised this idea that uh, innovation cannot be standardized. So, what is your really what is your experience in you know the importance of having common practices, common uh, tools uh, across the whole organization? I suspect that this plays a role in the, also in reconnecting this with the leadership, right? It's a very interesting question because you know again you know we can go into the extreme. So. I believe we need tools and processes to make these things, you know, more structured, but without stifling creativity. But the, the moment I learned my lesson was when I had a meeting with Bracken Darrell and he said, Alex, isn't this, you know, you know, isn't creativity about no structure? And, you know, is it so <laughs> I had to I almost overshot in the way I was explaining these things that it became like, oh, this is almost feels like an algorithm. But innovation is not an algorithm, right? It's this fine line between art and science. You need the visionary who has a direction. That's the artistic part. But guess what? You know, Steve Blank, the, the founder of the Lean Startup Movement, he likes to say, well, you know, there's a fine line between vision and hallucination. So you need that science part where you're constantly testing and adapting your ideas until it really makes sense. But again, you can overshoot there. You need to have this balance between the creativity and the vision and the rigor of testing and changing. So that's what we, what we really need in order to kind of move into the right direction. So, you know, I think the tools and the processes leverage the creativity of human beings. Is think of Roger Federer, you know, world's best tennis player. Some Rafa Nadal fa fans might disagree. But, you know, you don't wake up one morning and become a world-class tennis player. There's a lot of hard work and training, but there's also, you know, over time, very clear training methods that work or that don't work. So we need to get to that level of professionalism where we bring the right processes and tools to the table to become innovation surgeons, become very professional in the way we do this without stifling the creativity of human beings. That will always remain a central part. But again, you know, you don't want your surgeon to show up and say, oh, I went to this workshop, you know, over the weekend. I'm going to snip it around, you know, on you, you know, because I learned this new procedure. No, it's a profession innovation. So we need to find that right balance of being professional in the way we creatively explore our ideas. That, that's great. And then I will leave it to Bill uh, for, the, for the closure. I think that the, the example of the tennis player is great you know, because uh, from, your, from your answer, I get that uh, discipline is fine when it's learning focused. No? So when you, you really uh, adopting this discipline to test more, learn more, not just because you want to end up doing lots of PowerPoints with, with business model canvases on, on, on that. So, so totally. And I think uh, Roger Federer had this uh, 
you know, continuous uh, feedback system with uh, playing matches with, uh, uh, to, you know, with other players, which is somehow something that uh, I think uh, corporate leaders need to ensure that they, their teams are really in touch with reality all the time. And what I'd add to that is actually also the experience, right? So we always kind of have this cliche image of the young entrepreneur, you know, on the cover of a magazine. But the reality is, if you look at the data, it turns out that the most successful entrepreneurs are after 40 years of age. And that is, has to do also with the experience. Innovators and entrepreneurs get better with experience because they've learned so much, because they've made so many mistakes. So it's not just about the training. It's also about the experience that you accumulate. You won't make the same mistakes. And, you know, in Silicon Valley, there's this joke that, you know, how you call a failed entrepreneur experienced, right? So uh, the, the most um, 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 seasoned venture capitalists, they don't like investing in first-time entrepreneurs because they know they don't have the experience. They'll make really silly mistakes. So we need to start seeing innovation as a profession with tools and processes that you can actually learn. That doesn't mean, like in tennis, not everybody's going to be a Roger Federer, but you need some system you know, to actually get to the next level. Like, like a martial art, let's say. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Bill, do you want to close with a final uh, reflection so we can free up Alex? <laughs> What we were just talking about is really important. I, I also think that innovation, which used to be the servant of leadership, if you will, to the extent that innovation was ever anybody's servant, really now has become a source of instruction for leadership. And so one of the things that I think is if leaders think about um, the lessons that we've learned from design thinking and 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 um, you know prototyping, pre-typing, and lean startup, and all these things that those are now becoming more and more increasingly general management tools rather than just the province of of technology. Um, and I think that's an amazing turnaround for our time. But that's not the question. Here's the question: I read the book. It took me the weekend. I enjoyed it thoroughly. I've told you before that I thought Business Model Canvas really changed the way we think about innovation. I still believe that's true. But when I read this book, this book really took that conversation. The book is The Invisible Company. This book really took that conversation to a much higher level, to a much more sophisticated and much more strategic level than, than any of your prior books. And my question is, when did you see that that was possible? Did you, when you were writing Business Model Canvas, did you already know that in some way or some fashion you were going to do this? Or did this come about someplace else along the journey that you've gone through? That's an interesting question. I'd, I'd like to answer with, of course, we've seen it. You know, we work towards that, but that would not be the truth, right? So actually, you know, every time we create a new tool, uh, business tool, we, 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 create a, we write a new book or craft a new book because they're very visual, we ask the question, does the world need another business book? Right? And, and the answer should generally be no. And then we arrogantly say, yes, it, it does. But it's because it's informed by what we see in the field. So I always see, you know, when I see a company that can't innovate large scale, I see it as a personal defeat. I don't say, oh, they're stupid. They don't know how to do this. I see it as damn, what did we still do wrong that we can't get them to that next level, right? So we started with the business small canvas, and I think that filled a gap, you know, took off, but it wasn't enough, right? Then we put this stuff together with uh, Steve Blank's work, Eric, Reek's, Eric Reese's work around Lean Startup, still wasn't enough, right? So we wrote one book after the other, but, you know, about three years ago, two, two three years ago, for me, it was very clear that we need to create a shared language at the leadership level like we created at the doer's level with the business model canvas. And that's when we started with Eve. We went to the mountains, <laughs> it took two days, locked ourselves in, did some walking, of course, but then we asked, what is that shared language for leaders? And that's where, when we developed the portfolio map because in established companies, large or small, you don't, you don't just look at the business model. You allocate resources into different business models, actually your portfolio. And it's your portfolio of existing. And if you're really good, you're a por portfolio of the future, right? Present and future. And that's how the whole thing started. And then we just, you know, looked at the experience we had in the field. What are all of the things that leaders are really struggling with? And we tried to condense that into something that would be usable for them 
I think the challenge we had with this book is we didn't want to make it just in quotes for a small group of, of, of senior leaders. We wanted to make a book that is for everybody. While it targets senior leaders with that language to do portfolio management, we also wanted to you know, bring uh, business people in general, entrepreneurs to the next level with the business model portfolios. So we created this mix of what we think were the missing pieces in innovation. And again, I don't want to be arrogant. There were a lot of people who wrote great stuff and we, we really built on top of that. There's been a lot of stuff around the ambidextrous organization uh, for many years. Um, your work, great, you know, really moved the needle. We're just, you know, I sometimes laughingly say we're the plumbers of innovation. We tried to create those tools that might have still been missing for this to scale and take off. The user experience and, you know, user interface of those tools that help all of the knowledge that we're building on really take off. Because at the end of the day, you know, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is still missing that is holding these corporations, large and small, same for small, medium-sized companies, what is holding them back from really investing in the future? Because many are being disrupted. And now COVID-19, you know, we're all disrupted. What is holding them back from doing the right thing? That's the question we try to ask and we contribute in our small way with, with the tools that we think are important for the conversation. So congratulations. And um, I've just been delighted to be a part of this conversation. Simone? That's, that's great. I mean, I don't have uh, much to add on top of your uh, excitement. I think our listeners will really enjoy that. And uh, Alex, normally I finish the, the calls by asking the, the guests to say, you know, Let's tell the listeners where they can find your work, but uh, I think with you it's uh, it's more easy, you know, because everybody knows about strategizes work. But if you want to say a couple of things about uh, where do you, where people can find your latest uh, thinking, yeah, just you know, either Google Alex Osterwald or, or or go to the Strategizer website. You get you get a lot of lot of stuff for free. Um, we you know put out always a quarter of the book for free. I believe in this idea of freemium. Give people a, a taster, a teaser, and then they can decide if they like it. So, so that's something you'll find on the Strategizer website. But then I would also encourage people to just take the best thinking out there, you know, beyond ours. You know, uh, Simone, the, the research that you are doing, Bill, you know, the, the books that you wrote and the research that you've done over the years, I think if we really want to be professional innovators, we need to draw on this knowledge that has been created over years and become more like, you know, surgeons. And I like using that profession because they constantly continue. I might have a little bit of an idealistic view of, of surgeons, but the, the medical profession, you know, does constantly try to improve. And, the, the, you know, it, they're rigorous in that exploration of better processes to get to the next level. Now, the difficulty, of course, we're talking about social sciences, some moving pieces, <laughs> uh, not living organs where there's natural science. But I do think, you know, if we really want to be innovation professionals, we need to draw on the best work out there from the best uh, innovation thinkers and doers. Totally, totally. Never stop uh, learning. You're right. So thanks very much, Alex. It was great. Uh, and uh, we really look forward to talk to you again, maybe in the future. So thanks again. You want to say hello to our listeners? Thank you very much, Simone. Thank you, Bill. This was awesome. Great conversation. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, we catch up soon. Thank you for listening to Boundaryless Conversation Podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media and subscribe to our podcast by looking up for Boundaryless Conversation Podcast on all major podcasting platforms. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for more general research updates, where you can also find opportunities for learning and free tools for you and your team to design platform strategies in these turbulent times. This podcast has been brought to you by our research sponsor, Intesa San Paolo. We want to also thank Walter Mobilio at Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.